Good morning, church. Uh, welcome to uh, all you faithful ones that got up at an extra hour early to, to be here. Uh, don't no shame on those that come in in about, you know, 25 more minutes. I'll start back over from the start. So welcome, glad to have you here. You in the classic service, good to have you joining us as well. Uh, if you're new with us today, uh, my name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. And our heart for you and our heart for our church is to be a church that's simply about Jesus and helping people meet him, know him, and follow him. So everything we do is geared towards that end. And so today I'm filling in uh, for Pastor Brandon. Uh, some of you may know this. If you don't, uh, you can be praying for him and his family, Carissa and the kids, as well as Reese, uh, our tech director, and Becca, our worship director. They're all in Rwanda right now. Uh, so they're visiting some of the spots that, that we've helped build churches, and they're also going to go to the new spot that, that you all help fund to, to purchase a new property as well as fund a new building. So they're kind of beginning that process there, and they're going to be able to go around and visit some of those spots. So be in prayer for them uh, and their families as they travel around and get to see the work that God's doing there in Rwanda and the fruits of the uh, gifts that you all have given there to help support that. Uh, today we continue in a series called Strong in Grace, uh, and we're in the book of 2 Timothy, the second chapter. We're going to cover the last half of it today. I'm going to pray here in a minute, and then I just want to kind of cover or give a little overview of, of what we're going to look at today. This is a letter that's written from Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, to Timothy, who's a young pastor at this time. So it has a very specific purpose. He's writing to encourage a pastor. He's writing to Timothy about what pastoral leadership looks like, what leadership in the church looks like. And so we're going to examine it from that lens and help understand how does that apply to us today. So let's pray and we'll open up our Bibles and, and the passage will be on the screen as well. You can follow along. Father God, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to gather as your church this morning. Lord, thank you that we have something to gather for, the celebration of your son and his uh, life and death and resurrection for us and the forgiveness that that gives us and the hope that gives us, the future it brings us. Lord, thank you for your word that you have given us as well that guides us uh, while we live on this earth and points us towards you and gives us a purpose and meaning and uh, how we are to carry out life as followers of Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning uh, that your spirit would move in our hearts and reveal you to us more and more, and that in doing so, Lord, we would uh, follow you more passionately and more faithfully, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the common questions I get as a pastor oftentimes is people are moving or trans positioning from one spot to another is, how do I find a healthy church? What should I look for in a good church? And everyone has opinions about this, and it may be, oh, their buildings or their worship or, you know, any number of things, but, but oftentimes they miss out on some of the key things that make a church because it's not about a specific ministry. It's not about a, a facility. The church is not a building. It's people. And so, a healthy church should have a reflection of healthy people in it. And in particular, as we look at uh, this passage today, I think this is a great passage to help 
you determine what a healthy church looks like. Because Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy as a pastor, these are the things that are marks of healthy leaders. In fact, he uses this term approval. Timothy says, if you want to be an approved worker before God, these are the things that should mark you as a spiritual leader. And so they're not just great for leaders. In fact, if you're here and you're aspiring to be a leader, say you want to grow up and you're saying, hey, I've been part of this now. I, I want to I lead. I, I, I want to use the gifts God's given me to, to lead in different areas. This is a passage that should be uh, well-known by you or at least studied by you because these are the traits that will mark a, a leader that's approved by God. Now, we're not saying someone who's accepted in the sense of our faith Right? We trust Jesus Christ and you're positioned in him. You're welcomed into his family. That's an unconditional acceptance. But there's conditional acceptances that God has as well or conditional approval. You can be an approved worker, one who is doing what God's called you to do in a faithful way and gets a stamp of approval or the Bible even says there's rewards for that, eternal rewards for how you behave or how you carry out your stewardship. Or you can be not approved in that. Multiple places in the Bible, it talks about leaders who are approved or not approved. Paul spoke to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3 saying, hey, I laid a foundation and there's only one foundation you can lay. That's Jesus Christ. But now that's being built on, he says. Other leaders or ministers are building on it. You're building on it. And he uses this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3 of, of wood, hay, and straw or gold, silver, and precious jewels, saying you can build on this foundation that there's only one foundation, that's faith in Jesus Christ, you stand on that, but now you build on that with your life. And you build it with gold, silver, or precious jewels, or wood, hay, and straw. And then Paul says this, but the day will bring to light, it'll test those things and their worth. And it'll test it with fire. And he says, what makes it through the fire will be your reward. And, and they would have known in that day, obviously, those materials, wood, hay, and straw, what's going to happen to them when they're tested with fire? They're going to go up and smoke. But gold, silver, and precious jewels, they're simply refined. And then Paul says this, he says, you yourself will be saved. If you build with wood, hay, and straw, and the fire burns it all up, he says, you yourself will be saved because you're standing on the right foundation. But he said, you will be saved as if one through fire. Meaning, uh, like a fool who, who says, who knows, hey, my house is going to go up in flames tonight. If you knew that, you would go home after this service, and you would work in such a way that would get everything of value out of your house. But if you don't believe that, you'd go home, and when that fire happened, you'd escape it as if through fire, and you'd have nothing but your life. That's what Paul's talking about here to Timothy, saying, you want to be approved, you want to minister in a way that earns or results in an approval by God and an eternal reward, then do it modeling these characteristics. And that's not just for pastors, it's for leaders. If you want to be a leader in the church, today is a great day for you to say, what should I aspire to if I aim to lead others in the church? If you're not a leader, it's still the same traits. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. 
So even if you're not aspiring to a leader now, you're going to follow some leader, and these are the traits you want to see in that leader, and these are the characteristics that are then going to be developed in you as you follow them. So three traits we're going to see in this passage that Paul is passing on to Timothy and exhorting him with. Uh, one of the traits is something to do. One trait is something to avoid. And the other trait is something to pursue. So something to do, something to avoid, and something to pursue. So 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Follow along with me as we read this. Paul says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. P Paul's just returning back to what was spoken about the previous, you know, few chapters or for a few paragraphs. So he said, obviously, remind them of these things, and now he's going to go forward with what we're to do going forward. He said, this is useless. Don't fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. There's his overall statement. You're going to see this approval. You're going to see useful or useless in this passage. He's saying, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They've departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call in the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Three characteristics of an approved leader. Something to do, something to avoid, and something to pursue. The first one we see right out of the chutes is in verse 15, and it's, to this idea of properly understanding and teaching God's truth. If you want to be an approved leader, it has to start with the foundation of everything that we do. You must properly understand and teach God's truth. He says that in verse 15. It's the overarching command in this passage. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. How do we do that? As a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, you correctly teach the word of truth. God's word is at the, the heart of this. And, and in fact, the, the word Paul uses in here for, uh, for correctly teaching here is a, a word that we get our word orthodontist from or orthodox from. It's orthotomeo. 
and it means to cut straight. They would often use it in their day to say uh, something about a, a roadway or a path that was being cut through really difficult terrain, and you want to cut that path straight through the terrain. To, to give you a little visual, it's the exact opposite. If you've ever traveled west on 290 through the Y, just a little bit west of us, it's the exact, you see that? That is the exact opposite of orthotomeo. It's an absolute mess. Now, now they're supposedly redoing the whole thing, a ton of construction, and I hope the new design is orthotomeo because you want to be able to get right straight through that area that's a kind of a tricky spot in the easiest possible way. But Timothy is, is being encouraged by Paul in this passage to say, when you handle the word of God, cut it straight. Speak it truthfully. Don't tweak it, don't change it. Don't try to fluff it up, don't try to water it down. Church, this is such a, an important word for us today too. There are so many different issues in our culture, in our society today, that need to be addressed. And it's so easy as a leader to get caught into them or be swayed by them or want to fit in with the culture or fit in with society or, or fit in with the, the most common trend. And Paul's saying to Timothy, don't do that. Trends will come and trends will go. Beliefs will come and beliefs will go. You preach the straight word of God, the truth from God. That's what he's calling him to do. See, a faithful leader will minister to the culture without being swayed by the culture. We all know there are many, many issues that constantly challenge the truth of God's word. But the one thing that's been steady throughout has been God's truth. Over and over, trends come and go. God's word has consistently moved on and accomplished its work through every generation. This is why biblical teaching is such a priority in the church. We can't properly obey what we don't properly understand. If you don't understand what God's word says, it's absolutely impossible to obey it. The more accurate our knowledge of God is, the more acceptable and pleasing our worship will be. Let me say that again. The more accurate our knowledge of God is, the more acceptable and pleasing our worship will be. Jesus said it like this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. You can't remove truth from worship. It's not just a, a feeling, it's not just an action, it's guarded and it's directed and it's protected by truth and how we properly worship. A couple things that I think are really important, and, and my point isn't to belabor this a little bit, but I think there's some key things to just understand in this idea of, of properly handling the word of God or correctly teaching it or understanding it. The first is this, if you're going to understand God's word, you have to read it. It's amazing how many Christians nowadays haven't even read through the Bible one time. A book that's the core teaching of their faith 
and we haven't even taken the time to read through it or even large sections of it or, or aspects of it and, and it's not guiding our lives. If you're gonna avoid being swayed by the teachings of this world, then you have to be anchored into the teachings of God. And if you're going to understand that and be shaped by it, you have to understand how to even read it. And, and a part of that is just reading it in its context. We are known as Christians oftentimes of putting up a verse here, a verse here, or pulling this little piece out here and apply this, I like this little bit, but we aren't reading it in its proper context. Any more than we would be upset if a reporter came and interviewed us and then on the news took little bits and pieces of what we said and wove together their own story of what we said and totally took us out of context, we'd be extremely upset and offended by how they handled what we shared. If that's true for us, how much more so is that true with God's word? This isn't rocket science. I'm not trying to take you to some seminary class. I'm just talking a basic understanding and reading and saying, hey, if we're going to understand God and his word, then read it in its context. Understand a verse within the whole paragraph and that paragraph within a whole chapter and that chapter within the book and the book within the larger book. Understand what part of the Bible you're in and that takes some time. It's going to take a while. It's going to take some work to properly handle God's word and that's okay. We're capable of reading it within its context and knowing how to do that. That's the first part is understand what it says. But the purpose of the Bible is not to fill our heads with knowledge. The purpose of the Bible is to produce obedience in our lives. And so just knowing the Bible is not helpful if it's not being lived out in our lives. And so as we do that, we shouldn't just be a student or an academic of the Bible. We wanna read it in order to apply it into our lives. And we should be asking questions like, what should I believe? Like, how, how should this change my belief? If we read the Bible, but then we continue to believe the things that our culture tells us are true about man and women and marriage and, and school or education or our own nature, if we continue to believe what the world believes about those things and not the Bible, it really doesn't matter if we know what the Bible says. We have to first understand it, and then we have to come to a place of saying, God, do I believe this? What needs to to change? What beliefs do I need to change based on what you've told me? Or what actions? What actions need to change in my life based on what you've told me, Lord? What habits must I form based on what you've told me? What attitudes do I need to change? That's some of the hard ones. That's that transformational aspect of, of handling God's word properly because he wants to change our attitudes as well. It's not just doing something with a poor spirit, I did it, God, all right, all right, I, I did that. No, he's saying, how should your attitude be in the midst of your obedience as well? Do we really see God is, is enough for us? Do we cherish being in his presence? Do we see what he's called us to do is the greater good than what this world wants us to do? Understanding its truth and then applying it into our lives. That's what Paul is talking to Timothy about. Be diligent to handle God's word and to proclaim God's word. That's the first sign 
of a healthy leader, of an approved leader. The second one we see in this passage is this. It's avoid quarreling and useless discussions. That's how I'd summarize it. Avoid quarreling and useless discussions. We see this throughout this passage in several places. In verse 16, right after what we just read comes out, he says, avoid irreverent and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. He's saying, avoid these kinds of things. Down in verse 23, he says, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient. Look, I know your argumentative and and divisive behavior has caused so many people to come up to you and say, where do you go to church? I want to come and worship with you. (laughs) But hear hear me out. And and I say this personally because this is one of those that, that hits me. As a young pastor, I fell into this category quite a bit. I was very zealous coming out of seminary and the things you learn and you feel like your goal is I got to go around and, and correct everything that's wrong and what people are thinking. And I could be very argumentative. And what I realized is one, uh, even though there may be truth in it, when you do it in an unloving way, it doesn't accomplish the work that God has given you to accomplish as a leader. It's not my goal to convince everyone of what is true. It's already true. The truth will stand. As a loving servant, you're to help someone see that truth and love them in the best possible way to help guide them towards that truth. There are a lot of hard truths to believe and accept in the scriptures. If you don't think so, then you're probably not reading it. It's rarely a time that I don't sit down and read this book that it doesn't challenge me at the core of who I am because it's coming from a holy, perfect God and it's being read by a fallen, broken person. There are hard things to accept and believe. And oftentimes we can start to argue about it. In fact, it comes up in every church. Sometimes people have to be asked to stop or just leave. It's, it's cancerous, as Paul says. It becomes gangrene. And in, and in Paul's day, the only way you could address gangrene in their day was to amputate that limb so that it wouldn't destroy the rest of the body. And the Bible actually says similar things in the church. When Paul was writing to Titus in a similar way, another pastor, he wrote these words in, in verse uh, 9 through 11 of chapter 3 of Titus. He says this, if I pop it up, do you have that on the slides? He says, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. Some of your translations read it and say, hey, remove them. If a person is being divisive and you've warned them one time, you've gone to them and you go to them a second time, after that second time, it says, remove them from the fellowship. Because it's like gangrene. If you allow that kind of divisiveness to continue in a body, it will infect the whole body in an unhealthy way. This is how important and how serious Paul takes it and he's warning Timothy. You see, I think more Christians, ironically, have lost their approval at business meetings or at email, through emails, 
that they've sent out. It, it happens in the church. We can be incredibly divisive. We can be very argumentative in how we do things. And that's not how we're supposed to do it. It doesn't mean we can't challenge things that are wrong or we can't address stuff that's inappropriate or not healthy. It just means how we do it says more about us as Christians than that we do it. And Paul is encouraging Timothy here, avoid these things, Timothy. They're going to come up in your church. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've seen these things as well. In fact, you've seen the damage of them. Here's, here's two things I'd, I would say in the years I've been in ministry and watching this happen that often are common amongst disputes that may happen in the church because they can disguise themselves in good things. They're not usually people that are way out here believing some wacky thing. That's pretty easy to identify. Most of the heretics in history, the people were considered heretics throughout biblical history, were not people with wild ideas way out on the fringes. They were people that were reading the Bible as much as the faithful apostles were. In fact, they might have been reading the Bible more than some Christians were. The issue wasn't whether they were reading the Bible or not. The issue is how they were understanding it and, and how they were applying it in their lives. And that's true for us as well. So here's two things to look for inside of useless quarrels. They're usually there. One is a new or unique doctrine with some kind of a obscure twist on a historic one. Hey, it, so it's, it sounds a lot like the Bible, but it's got this unique little twist, and it's a little different than history. And, and this is common because just as humans in general, we, we kind of want to have some inside information. We love having something that's, that, hey, look at what I've discovered. No one else in the 2,000 years since Jesus has been on this earth has been able to come up with this unique translation of this passage. And that's the beauty of, of why even today as we read uh, the Nicene Creed, it's important that we connect ourselves with our Christian brothers and sisters throughout history. We have this tendency, I know, I know no one here does, but I know there's lots of Christians throughout our, our city and in the world, the Western Christians, that think they're the best dang Bible readers that have ever walked this earth. That people that lived in the 1800s, I mean, granted it was a little tough then, but they couldn't read like we can read. Right? They weren't nearly as smart as we are today. So it's, it's natural that we're going to come up with some discoveries that are even better than what they did back then. That's kind of what we call cultural or chronological snobbery. We think we're the smartest generation to ever walk the earth. And so one of the ways we avoid that is by connecting ourselves to the historic church and saying there was good and godly men and women who served the church and who read the Bible and wrote things about it, it's important to be connected with that. We don't make that our ultimate authority. Our ultimate authority is always God's word. But those are companions that we walk with so that we don't become individually arrogant thinking we have some new, unique twist on a doctrine or a truth that only we have understood. The second one is, is an orthodox doctrine but it's emphasized in an ungodly or unbiblical way. That's another common one. You, you have a, a right teaching, and, and, and you're so convinced of it that you use it like a club to pound everyone in your church until they're in submission to that doctrine. So it's a correct teaching, but it's being forced or pushed 
in an unhealthy way. Rather than recognizing it's a journey for people to get there, just as it was a journey for you to get there, you instead teach them gently and pray for them and encourage them and help them on their way to the truth. And Paul was saying that to Timothy. Watch out for these things. It happens all the time. You see, if someone thinks they have right truth, but they do it and teach it in an unhealthy way, they're serving someone, but it isn't Jesus. Because Paul tells us right here in this passage, verses 24 and 25, look at what he says characterizes the Lord's servant. He said, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. That's what a godly leader does, even if they know they're standing on the truth. If someone is using the truth any other way, they're serving someone, they're not serving Jesus. The last thing we see in this passage is as someone were to become or someone, something were to pursue as a, a godly leader or, or a follower of Christ. And that's this, to flee immature passions and pursue godliness. Flee immature passions and pursue godliness. He wants us to pursue this kind of behavior. That's putting the truth into action. Look at how Paul says this in verses 20 through 22. He says, now in a large house, he, he starts here with an illustration, and then he's going to bring us to the point. He says, now in a large house, there are not only gold, silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anything purifies, if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then he gives the principle, flee from youthful passions. When we pursue youthful passions, we become dishonorable vessels, dirty vessels. And he says instead, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul gives this Neat illustration, and so it got me thinking of a picture up here. Uh, uh, yeah, there you go. So there's a plunger. Y'all know what a plunger is in a house, right? It's, it's used for a dishonorable type of activity in your home. But I noticed about this, if you, if you turn it, you know, if you were to turn that upside right, it kind of looks like a, a fancy goblet when it's upside right. So, I mean, I'm thinking, why buy nice goblets in your home when you have plungers? Just pull out your plungers the next time the guests come over that you really want to impress and, and pop that baby up on the kitchen table. That sounds kind of gross, but that's exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage. You would never use a dishonorable tool or vessel in your home to do something that's honorable, and, and vice versa. You wouldn't want to flip that around. God is saying the same thing. He's given us a means to become honorable vessels through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's called you to diligence for that. If you want to be a, a useful vessel in his church, then pursue godliness. Flee those youthful passions that don't bring approval into our lives. It's this word here, uh, it means 
simply a passion. It's a, a good passion. It's a, a, a natural desire. All these passions are natural desires. They're just being used in an immature way. And that's so important for us as Christians. Most of the passions we have have a proper use and an improper use. And Paul's saying, use it in a mature way. Don't use it like an immature way. Like one of them would be divisiveness or argumentation. That's a, that's a, a passion for peacemaking or bringing unity, but you're using it in an unhealthy way. Instead, take that same energy and say, how do I pursue peacemaking? Instead of divisiveness and argumentativeness. I learned the hard way as a pastor for 15 years uh, how this was so important. In fact, it became one of my trademark signs for anyone that I was going to choose to bring into an elder-type role or move down that pathway. If I had not gone through a conflict with them or had not seen them walk through a conflict or a different, difficult situation, I wouldn't consider them for an, a role as an elder because how they walk through that tells you a whole lot about their character. And if you know anything about ministry, I remember one of my seminary professors telling me this, he said, 90% of what you do in ministry is conflict resolution. Whether it's individual counseling or dealing with dynamics across the whole church. And that popped into my head when I saw that. I allowed someone onto our team that I'd never seen go through that and their immaturity came out at a time when we needed unity, and it became very detrimental and unhealthy for the church, and it was a painful thing to address at that point. Same passion, but it can be used immaturely or maturely. You can be self-serving, or you can sacrificially serve others. Youthful passions are very self-serving. It's taking your energy to get what you want the way you want it as opposed to saying, how can I use this passion for the sake of others? How can I sacrificially serve others to get them and help them get what they need and what they want in Jesus? You see those as traits within leaders. Frivolous spending versus generous giving. When you're youthful, you just spend your money. You're kind of indiscriminate. You don't really think. You don't have a long-term plan or a long-term purpose. So you're just flip frivolous about how you spend, and you keep doing that, as opposed to someone who is generous in their giving, who thinks outside of themselves with their resources. That's a mark of a growing and godly leader that sees the things that I have are not just for me. God has given me these resources to steward for his glory. How do I spend my money? Sexual purity versus sexual impurity. Immature versus mature. Those aren't wrong passions, but God has given boundaries in which those passions are to be enjoyed. The mature saint and the immature use that differently. They're always chasing the new thing when, when we're young. We're always looking for the new thing. We're always looking for the quick fix. And, and we jump from one activity to the next or this one. It's that FOMO. I, I might miss out if I don't get on the right thing as opposed to a growing, maturing saint that's faithful, that's available, that's engaged, that's reliable. They make a commitment and they're able to stick with it. That's the difference Paul's talking about here with Timothy. He says, flee youthful passions. He's saying, grow up in a healthy way. Become mature, Timothy. 
the truth be told, <laughs> there isn't a person present in this building who's perfectly approved. Just these three traits, if it was perfection, would eliminate everyone in this room. That's why the good news we proclaim is not about a person. It's not about our church. It's about Jesus. The one person who's diligently done exactly what this passage talks about. You see, Jesus diligently and sinlessly presents himself to the Father as one approved. He took on human flesh and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He didn't just teach the word of truth correctly. He did that, but he actually became it. He didn't just proclaim the gospel. He became the gospel for you and for me. You know, Jesus only spoke truth because his words convicted sinners and confronted religious leaders. That's how you know Jesus never compromised anywhere he was. He convicted sinners and he confronted religious leaders. He didn't have favorites. It didn't matter if you were the highest authority in the, in the land or you were his closest friend. He always spoke the truth in love. Jesus embodied this very passage. He's the perfect leader for you and for me. No one ever walked on earth who was more compelling or more controversial than Jesus. There's no one that ever walked on earth that was like him. Everywhere he went, people tried to pull him into arguments or debates, and he never took the bait. He would often share a simple truth, or he'd ask one question and, and dumbfound those in his presence, and then he would slip away and move on to a place of ministry where people were responding to the things he was teaching. Go ahead and study it. I actually did a study of this in seminary, and it actually blew me away. I, I studied every single situation in the Gospels where Jesus experienced conflict. And that was his MO, a simple question, a simple statement. You never see this page upon page upon chapter upon chapter of him having this debate or argument with anyone. It was a simple phrase, a simple question, and it dumbfounded those who were trying to catch him. And then he moved on and he found where people were open to hearing his truth. In church, he knew the truth. And yet he still showed it in this way. And talk about fleeing youthful pleasures. The greatest test of fleeing youthful pleasures is a willingness to suffer unjustly for others. There is no more greater sign of maturity than a willingness to suffer unjustly for the sins of someone else. You see, to experience the opposite of pleasure, when we're young and even as we're older, we're all about pleasure. That's, that's all we often ever seek. And every decision we make is in some way trying to increase our own pleasure. But to experience the opposite of pleasure, as Jesus did, for the sins and actions of someone else is the highest mark of maturity you could ever have. 
And Jesus modeled that in spades for you and me. The cross is the greatest act of love, the highest measure of maturity, the most diligent pursuit of approval by his Father. See, when you see the heart of Christianity in the person of Jesus, when you see this picture of faithful ministry in the person of Jesus, it moves you to become more like him. So I want to ask you today as we wrap up just a couple questions that may help you pursue what a healthy leadership looks like in your own life. One is this, where is he calling you to become more like him today? Have the words of Jesus become just another decorative book on the shelves in your home? Or do you have a regular diet of taking some time and letting them settle in your heart? Are you moving towards becoming one who is diligently knowing God's word and and preparing yourself to be able to share it with others? Are you a workman approved when it comes to that or on on the path to do that? See, no other book you read will ever impact your life here or eternally like this book will. No other book will. None. Be diligent. It's to your good and to God's glory. Maybe God's word is a regular part of your life, and and some of you are are already going, hey, got that one down? Yes. But your tendency is to wield it like a club rather than like a precise sword. And you have beaten and bruised and hurt people with this book rather than love them. Stop. Stop. We can beat people away from God with the very book that he gave us to draw them towards it. Have you ever argued or quarreled someone into the accepting your opinion? Have you ever argued or quarreled someone into the kingdom of God? Then I'd suggest trying love and patience as Paul is sharing here and repent of your pride to want to do otherwise. Maybe there's an immature passion that still characterizes you. Maybe there's something in your life that continues to mark your immaturity. And God's calling you today to flee, to turn away from it and grow up and become the man or woman that he's called you to be, a useful vessel in his hand. Whatever it is, is it worth disqualifying you from being used in an eternal way in the lives of other people? Do you really want to be thought of as so selfish that you want to cling to youthful pleasures rather than deeply and eternally impacting the lives of others whom God has brought into your life? I don't think there's a person here that wants that. Pursue godliness the way he's called you to. See, a church with leaders that models these traits will be a church that impacts its community. A church with people pursuing these traits will be a church that reflects the character and the love of Jesus 
in its community. We can be that church. It's not rocket science. Paul gives us a real simple guide right here. Know God through his word. Avoid squabbling over things that just aren't worth the waste of our time and our breath. And pursue godliness in him. And he will use you as an approved vessel in his hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for just the simple beauty of seeing into this very personal letter that Paul wrote to this disciple of his, Timothy. Lord, it's incredible that we can hold these truths in these letters today and learn from them still. That they were written in history. They weren't just someone's philosophical ponderings. And Lord, that you embodied them yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. We can look at his life. We can examine his life. So much is written about it. And we can see in him Even when we can't see it in your church, we can see in him the truth and the beauty of these things you share with us. Lord, help us become a church that's more and more like your son so that we might represent him and reflect him in our community and throughout your world. We love you, Lord, and praise you for these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.